I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is You Can't Make This Up. You Can't Make This Up is the podcast where we uncover the true stories behind your favorite Netflix documentaries and films. On today's episode, we take a closer look at the Netflix documentary film Missing, the Lucy Blackman case. Police in Japan have made a public appeal for help in tracing a 21-year-old British woman. Lucy Blackman hasn't been seen since leaving the bar where she worked as a hostess. Today, we're talking to director Hioi Yamamoto and producer Rob Sixsmith. Lucy Blackman left her life in England for new experiences in Japan, working as a hostess in a Tokyo nightclub. But her disappearance in 2000 sent shockwaves through both nations. Her father launched a media blitz to pressure Japanese authorities. Meanwhile, police learn a sexual predator has been preying on women undetected for years. Missing, the Lucy Blackman case, explores the desperate manhunt and the clash of cultures that resulted. Will Tokyo detectives find the criminal believed to have victimized hundreds of women and answer the question of what happened to Lucy? That's a very solid lead. It's a huge step forward. This is the first time they're to show that the person they suspect um, has kidnapped Lucy Blackman is actually connected to her, that they have had some contact. And I'm joined now by director Hyoe Yamamoto and producer Rob Sixsmith. Welcome to You Can't Make This Up. Thank you for having us. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. So I'd love to hear from both of you. Why were you interested in making a documentary about this case? Yeah, I mean, uh, when the case happened, I was actually, I was studying in the States. I was going back and forth. But I remember that Tim Blackman coming to Tokyo and do, doing the whole campaign because it was a summer break for me. And I vaguely remembered him. But I actually didn't catch on anything until I read the Richard Lloyd Perry's book uh, called People Who Eat Darkness, which was at the time, actually, it, it was published a little later in Japan. And I actually picked it up in Japan in Japanese translated version. And I read that because that was people were talking about it because, uh, you know, it was a case involved in uh, in Japan, etc. And I was quite fascinated, but I didn't actually think that, that it, it would be a documentary because it was such a gut-wrenching tragedy about the family falling apart. So so I didn't think of make a documentary, but I, we did continue to do further research and find out that, that there is another book that is written by a Japanese author about the case, and it was told from the perspective of the detectives. And I actually thought it was quite interesting perspective. And in the book, it mentions all these detectives still sort of visiting the site where they discover the body and still offering prayers, etc. And it just made me wonder why. And that sort of really started the whole thing as an idea, as a documentary. What about you, Rob? I'm pretty much exactly the same age as Lucy. So when I was sort of of that age, sort of age of traveling around and exploring the world, it was exactly the same time that this case broke. So we were very much the sort of that that slightly blessed generation where we were looking, right, where can we go after school? What can we do? Let's explore the world. And then this case happened and it was, it had a bit of a a universal gut punch impact on every one of my friends and everyone I knew. We all knew this case intimately. We followed it. It kind of informed the way that we actually looked at traveling and looked at, you know, the, the world slightly. So 
when the opportunity came up and Hioi sort of found this book and this original source in Japan, it felt like a very rare opportunity to tell a case from two sites because I have only ever heard it from the UK side. I've only seen it through the UK press. I've only heard sort of rumors of what happened in Japan. I've never, ever heard from a Japanese detective ever on this case. So it was so rare to be able to hear that. And for me, I think that's what's so fascinating. It's like two, two parts of the, the story sort of finally melded together. So I think that's what made it so unique. And I think that's what the, the whole film represents, essentially. He always mentioned People Who Eat Darkness, which is a tremendous true crime book. Um, and for those who haven't read it, I think it's fair to say that Lucy's case was a huge story in the UK, right? And I think that's something that American audiences might not know. Is that is that fair to say? I mean, it was everywhere. It was on every single red top paper. It absolutely monopolized the the six o'clock news, the seven o'clock news, all the way through the nine o'clock news every single day. Everyone really felt for Lucy's mom and dad and the rest of the family. Um, it all felt like a journey that we were all on slightly as a year sort of group. So it was huge. It was hard to estimate. I think for me, this was the first time that I ever took note of a true crime case ever, right? This was before the Madeleine McCann case, before any of that. So yeah, it, it's hard to overstate how seismic it was in the UK. I'm going to stick with you for a second. I'm wondering if you can just just recap, tell us a little bit about Lucy and what it was that brought her to Tokyo. I mean, again, I think it was that that wanderlust that so many people in that that period had. But I remember Lucy saying, "Well, I'd like to uh, to travel to Japan. I'm fascinated by the culture out there, and it would be an interesting experience." Lucy just wanted to get out and see the world, which is why she originally joined British Airways as a, an air hostess. And then when an offer came through her best friend to go and explore Tokyo, she was like, amazing. I can't wait to see. Everyone has such an amazing sort of imagination when it comes to Japan and everything that Japan represents when you're from a small little town like Seven Oaks in the UK. I mean, it's it's so hard to, to really have those two locales seated together. Seven Oaks is small little churches, it's fields, it's agrarian, it's a little pub, it's everyone knowing each other's business. And yes, it's a commuter town into London, so it has that atmosphere. But compared to the metropolis that is Japan, the allure of Japan must have just been all-consuming for someone like Lucy. So I think that's what originally took her to Japan. I think many Westerners might find the concept of hostesses unfamiliar or a little confusing. Can you talk about what the hostess does? Yeah, I mean, Jake Edelstein pretty much articulated, but it's it's no sex like many of the, some of the contributors said in the film. Although there is a role playing that goes into this uh, occupation where you basically, the guy, most likely a businessman is sort of uh, bringing either their guests or their co-workers to and basically paying expensive drinks and there will be ladies who accompany them to basically make sure that they're have a good time. They talk to you, they flirt with you, but there's really nothing more really. That's what you're expected to do. Really. I, I know, I understand that the concept sounds very, very seedy and it is, it's a bit for, for some, it sounds like a prostitution, but it's really not because there's a clear line and role playing in, 
in Japan and in an environment like this, you're supposed to sort of enjoy and flirt and have this sexual tension. And when it ends, when you go out and that's it, it just that role playing whole supposed to stop. Um, so there are clear sense of that as far as if you operate in Japan, but obviously, because it's you're dealing with human beings and sometimes people get the wrong way, people get into trouble. It's true, but as an occupation, it's pretty standard fare as far as uh, oh, that's how it's so considered in Japan, at least. Is it considered an inherently risky job in any way, generally speaking? No, not at all. Like I said, there's a clear sense of role playing and where the lines are in if you if you live in Japanese society. And when you go into these clubs, you can have this certain expectations, but always the lines are, you know, lines are made clear. And if, if anyone is there to cross it, there are people there who are security guards, etc., who make sure that people don't cross that line. Rob, let's talk a little bit about Tim Blackman. I'd love to come to you first on this because he is really a looming uh, figure in this story. Can you remind us, how does he first learn that Lucy's missing? And what are some of the first things that he does? I mean, it's that sort of parent's worst nightmare, really, isn't it? Especially when your kid has gone off to a, a place where you think is has no inherent danger. So when the first phone calls come in, I think there's a general feeling of kind of like, oh, it'll be fine, maybe a bit of disbelief. But then obviously, as people get more and more concerned and more phone calls come in and they begin to learn the actual facts of what's happened on the ground, they begin to understand that something has clearly gone wrong. There were three or four more calls and I knew there was something that had gone wrong. That feeling of complete blind panic just crashes in on you. Um, and that's when they sort of mobilize as a family and as friends. And I think that's one of the impressive parts of this story is, is how they cottoned on so quickly to the fact that this was not normal behavior for Lucy. She was very reliable. She always kept everyone updated. And then suddenly she all but disappears off the radar in a way that is very, very unlike her. So they go into emergency mode. And then they're onto planes and then they're trying to work out and understand in a very, very, very different culture where, you know, even the street names aren't written in English necessarily. And you're trying to decode not just a, a foreign culture, but a foreign police procedure and, and the way that they operate. So it is absolutely that worst case scenario thriller, essentially, for someone like Tim, for someone like Jane, for the entire family. And it's definitely a position that I would, you know, you can't even begin to imagine how terrifying that is. So he says that after discussing the case with Japanese police, he got the impression it wasn't going to be a priority because the victim was a foreigner. And he said, because Lucy is not a Japanese national, you won't get a police investigation. And that really sunk home in me. With those alarm bells ringing, I thought, well, I've got to really think about some way of making an investigation take place. Yahweh, do you think that he misunderstood what officials were telling him? I mean, I would say yes and no, because yes, in a sense that, uh, you know, he felt that there might be a prejudice against the foreigners gone missing. Uh, it is true. It is a fact that there are lots of illegal uh, workers there at, at the time, and it was quite tolerated. And it was relatively common that the people, foreigners who were there, disappeared once in a while. So their police did say that, that they were getting a lot of reports around that time. So in that sense, it might be true that the police might have not been taken as seriously as he would have liked them to. 
true. But no, in the sense that the Japanese police never, you know, share the information with even with the relatives in a, in a kidnapping case like this. And, and the fact that they had a very strict code of doing things at the Tokyo Metropolitan Police. And clearly he was just not keyed in on it as much as he would like to. Of course, as a parent, you know, you would expect them to probably, he certainly expected to be more informed than he, he ever was. Sure. I, I want to get back just to Tim for a moment and then and then we'll turn to the investigation um, because there is an awful lot of archival film of Tim Blackman walking around Tokyo in the early days of the investigation. It seemed like to me anyway that he did have this very concerted plan to keep Lucy's case high profile in the media. And as you said, this is before the Madeleine McCann case. This is really before, I think, the explosion of a lot of cases in the media, in the true crime space, so to speak. This was a concerted plan of his, wasn't it, Rob? Just to keep it front of mind for everybody. I mean, I don't know quite where Tim got his savvy media kind of understanding and knowledge from, but he understood that the media is a a bit like a fire, right? You have to light the fire, it has to be big, and then you have to keep it stoked. And that may be in the entire family, but he knew that he couldn't let it dwindle because when it dwindled, either the media went somewhere else, perhaps even somewhere negative, or they dug into things rather than focusing on Lucy and the finding of Lucy, which was what Tim absolutely kept front and center. And I think that's what's quite incredible. And I got the impression that he was incredibly concerned, but that Tim was also a very flamboyant showman and that he would use his charisma to stir up things so that something got done. He is going to make sure that everybody gets their ass in gear and really looks for Lucy. You know, if you, as an instruction for people who might find themselves in a similar situation, yes, he was unapologetically brusque at time. And I think he, he admits that quite candidly but he kind of felt he just had to do whatever was needed to keep his daughter in the limelight because he genuinely believed that it was probably going to be that intersection between the police and the media that would find his daughter and so yeah it was it was a fascinating kind of case study in how to deal with this terrible tragedy essentially yeah what was this like from the police's perspective i mean had they ever had a family member of a victim in a case like this so aggressively go to the media to sort of put pressure on them, the police, in an investigation of this nature? No, absolutely not. I, I mean, I think one of the major reasons why Japanese media was so fascinated with Tim Blackman was that the I, I'm sure they were thinking, okay, if this had been a Japanese father, this would have never happened. And look at this this guy, this father is doing. Also, I'm, I'm sure I, I mean that with admiration and also with sort of bit of a perhaps xenophobic tendency. Say, oh, this is a British man, British guy doing making all this fuss. I mean, at the b- bottom line is, I, I think a lot of detectives also didn't know what to make of Tim Blackman in the beginning, for sure. I think they understood his intention as a, like his inner struggle as a, as a father whose, whose daughter is gone missing. But it's just the bottom line is, uh, you know, they, they were just not used to this type of cases where it has so much media attention, not just domestic, uh, but international. They basically had a lots of international media knocking on doors, asking questions and Yes, they just had a sarin gas attack several years before that. But even then, there was not much international media attention at the time. So I think this was one of the really the first cases that the the Tokyo Metropolitan Police had to ever handle, where it has so much international attention, while also domestic media was going crazy over this whole thing. So 
that that's why they basically didn't know really how to handle it. But similar things keep happening. You know, whenever foreign goes foreigner goes missing in Japan, the families are just not keyed in. They're just also that's just not way to they investigate clearly the missing case like this. So it just there was a big cultural sort of difference there as well for sure. Yeah, I wanted to ask about that cultural difference because your subjects talk an awful lot about, you know, Japan's image as this polite nation and how that's built into the culture. And they're very circumspect. And Tim is this fiery guy. And to me, it almost seems like he's, you know, kind of intentionally trying to like have this different affect, almost make make them maybe they maybe they maybe like shed sort of an impolite affect on the police and they are really taken aback by it. And they're still so diplomatic. But I wonder, I'm like, are they just thinking like, this guy is a pain. He's not helping. He's just not helping. But they are still so diplomatic when they talk about him. And I was really struck by that because that's not the way a lot of investigators talk about people who have hindered their work. But that was the same with Tim Blackman himself, too. He he spoke very, very respectfully in retrospect of the police and, and the, the, he had no hard feelings. So I think both sides practically knew what each other were doing. And perhaps Tim might have taken more boisterous approach uh, in dealing with the police, but they sort of knew that was his, uh, you know, I mean, they understood the where he was coming from, although perhaps maybe they thought the, the media, media attention craving, they didn't understand as much as Tim would have liked them to. But I, I think they sort of, they had the understanding. It, it, they just sort of understood that they're totally coming from a different place. I mean, there was a bit of a lost in translation aspect for sure between the communication, but it seemed like after 20 years have gone past, they seemed to sort of understood where each of them was coming from almost. So at the beginning of the conversation, I asked you the question about why you were interested in in working on a documentary about this case. And you both talked about your differing perspectives from the story coming into it. I'm really curious about the collaboration, how you worked together, which different parts of the story you worked on and how that actually worked as you were putting this film together. Because we do see definitely sort of like different places, different scenes, uh, Japan, England. Can you just talk about how it worked? Yeah, I mean, look, it's like I said, it's sort of two parts of the the same brain trying to head in the same direction, right? I think international collaborations offer so much if you can do them correctly, because we're both coming at this case with our own preconceived ideas of what how that case was covered in our own countries. So essentially, we kind of divided it up slightly in that, obviously, kind of the, the UK-centric stuff kind of fell on so my plate, obviously talking to Tim, um, talking to the kind of the people involved in the UK side. And then obviously the very rare and important access to the Japanese detectives, of which I'm sure Hiyori will talk about, had to obviously fall to Hiyori. And there's no way that I could have done that kind of access because I would never have been given, I would never have had the door open for me, I don't think. So I think, again, I was very fortunate in order to deal with the UK, with Tim, with all of that side being Seven Oaks. And then Hiyoi obviously did a lot of the other side. I, I think Rob was also familiar with the Japanese book and what, 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 that, what that was about. And we both, you know, in the beginning agreed that, the, OK, we're going to tell the story from the perspective of the detectives. And I, I think that was always sort of like a, the point with the common ground where we always com- come back to in terms of when we're, we're figuring, figuring out the storytelling. So obviously the story starts with the Tim's perspective 
and you know the fear fear of this parent uh, who child gone missing it's a sort of like an emotional hook to the story when, when audience uh, suddenly is thrown into Tim's world of you know not knowing what's going on etc but the but the really core story of it is really told from the perspective of detectives and how they felt attached to Lucy and how much they're sort of emphasized although you know they a lot of them never spoke with foreigners or had any communication, but they begin to develop this sort of like a bond with them and they really motivated themselves to really to get the guy and to get the justice done. So I, I think that was always a place where we came back to, okay, obviously a lot more happened with the parents and the other side of, other aspects of the story, far more happened than we were able to include it in the final film. But the point that we came back to was, okay, we're going to tell this from the detective story. That's where it came back to always. And is it my understanding that there are actually two versions of this documentary and a version that's meant for an American audience or Western audience and a version that's meant for a Japanese audience? Is that is that right, Hioi? Yeah, that is true. So uh, obviously the Japanese version is dominantly told from a detective's perspective. First time we hear the case, we're already hearing it from a captain who, who was responsible for making a big break in the case. Obviously in the international version, we're here first from Tim. So yeah, that was a big... Uh, difference but the first 20 30 minutes is quite have a different perspective but at the end towards the end from the middle towards the end the body of the film is pretty much the same it's a procedural of how these detectives actually track down the the culprit basically and and i think that having done um another netflix series on korea the raincoat killer which we did for the korean audience i think then when we looked at the responses in the international audience they needed more detail and clarity on procedures, on institutions, on things that we wouldn't obviously tell the Korean audience because they know that stuff in spades. They also knew things about the case that the international audience did. So I think that the bisected telling of it is actually very useful because it, it means that you never talk down to either side, but you still allow yourself to actually d- dive into a bit of detail for the people who need it. So I want to talk about the investigation. Can we talk about some early challenges? Um, It seems like there were some hindrances. And I'm wondering, in the early stages of the investigation, were police ever on the right track? Or was it just challenge after challenge? That was probably more like challenge after challenge. Because initially, they were going after the last customer that Lucy had dealt with. uh, And she she disappeared during a day off. So she wasn't working that day, the day she disappeared. So they, but they were going after the last customer the day before or whenever she worked. So they were on the wrong track, uh, uh, as uh, I think some of the detectives clearly uh, sort of mentioned that. So and then the other unit sort of came in to help. And they're the one who really actually cracked the case by going through all these old records. of, And they started finding a pattern that there's been a lot of hostesses, particularly foreign hostesses that have been complaining about this, uh, uh, about this predator who might uh, have done something to them, and all these reports, there was no one to really put together all these reports and put them together and say, okay, there is a clearly someone is actually taking advantage of these ladies. They, so until Lucy Blackman unfortunately disappeared, some of the separate clues they were able to put together were pretty extraordinary. Can you talk about some of those like very, very key important clues which led the police ultimately to Joji Obara? Right. I mean, there were 
also Tim Blackman points this out too at the time, you know, how come there is no, you know, phone records? Cause there, everyone was starting to using the cell phone, but not quite as, as much as obviously now, but what about the phone trace and what about the street camera and stuff? But at the time in Japan, there was a very strict privacy laws that they couldn't just, police just couldn't march into the phone company and say, show us all your records. They couldn't do that. And they couldn't go to the apartment complex and say, give us all the name of the residents. They couldn't either. So what they did was sort of basically they had the manager or whoever is in charge that belongs to the institution that they need a data from. They said, we cannot tell you who it is, but there is a foreign national missing and it's, it's a matter of time, life and death. We need to find her. It's inherent that we need to find her as soon as possible. Can you please, as, as an individual, allow this? Can we have access to the data? And amazingly, some of the key people that the, had the records, like cell phone companies, uh, the company who were holding the records for the apartment residents, they actually managed to convince them to say yes for obvious reasons. You know, So these are sort of very sort of human one-on-one sort of, uh, you know, communication skills that they were able to apply that to, you know, push the investigation forward because otherwise they probably wouldn't have gone to the Jojo Barra for sure. Further complicated for me in the fact that Jojo Barra did everything he could to cover his tracks, right? He was not a simple person. He had hundreds of burner phones, false kind of almost false identities, shell companies, bits and pieces. Like He was not a simple character to track down. And I think that's what made this a particularly complex and for us as observers, interesting case, essentially. What else do we know about his background uh, before his arrest? Well, I mean, that was a major obstacle that they had to overcome because they, his records are popping up in different region in Japan that the, he was, you know, caught peeping with somebody else uh, and somewhat completely away from Tokyo, etc. So I, I think they eventually start to figure out, just put two and two together. But one of the de- detectives also said there were lots of sort of threads that they were following, but the difficulties was obviously putting one one-on-one together and saying this is the same person. So when that happened for the detectives, obviously that was a major break, but they did say the, the fact that he was camouflaging has so many different identities, names, company names also, that register under different names. He, he They did say that that made it extremely, extremely difficult to track down uh, because of some of the privacy law, aforementioned privacy laws, etc. It's, it's worth mentioning just that Ibarra wasn't your sort of average Japanese citizen, he had an awful lot of money, right? He yeah. came from a particular family that was affluent. And that allowed, enabled a certain modus operandi, that enabled a certain behavior, a playboy attitude, fast cars, hanging out in these hostess bars all the time. They're not cheap, right? So he, he could splash the cash. And that also allowed him to kind of maneuver the system and, and disappear and, and control things that perhaps an average person couldn't. Wouldn't, would you agree with that, Hioe? Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. And hide in plain sight, right? I think there is something to living a very high profile lifestyle that kind of sometimes throws suspicion away from you, even if you are like a mysterious, quiet guy. Like, it's hard to imagine the person who's right there with all of the cars in the fancy apartment is also the person responsible for all the people going missing. I think that's actually quite an effective disguise in many ways. So among the evidence collected from Abar's apartment were these 400 horrific videotapes depicting all of his crimes against women. There were 
so many, and the detectives had to go through them one by one by one. But amongst those tapes, there was not a single one of Lucy Blackman. There was one videotape that ended up being very important. Can you talk about uh, why the Corita Ridgeway video was so critical to this case? Well, I mean, they obviously didn't know who it was, but they actually found found one woman of uh, who's having some kind of a seizure while she was being uh, she was unconscious from the chl- chloroform that she inhaled, and this forensic investigator sort of discovered that the chloroform can actually use a can actually cause a acute hepatitis and some of the symptoms. And this flapping hands was one of the symptoms that he came across, and he me- immediately recognized uh, after he'd done the research that this was actually come from uh, exactly that symptom. So they tracked down the records and they did find out that the specific victims who appeared on the video with a flapping tremor uh, syndrome uh, was actually passed. Uh, So that's when sort of things sort of turned around and they actually assigned another detectives um, to work on this specific part of the case. And that's how they discovered that the there, there is definitely a shadowy figure who's been part, part of this whole, that is connected to the whole case. How did his compulsion for paperwork and receipts also help solve this case? That was really interesting. Yeah, I mean, he's clearly a hoarder and he, uh, a lot of the detectives who actually raided his apartment on several different locations, they all said they were quite disgusted because clearly he, he was a hoarder and wasn't particularly a neat one. Apparently, uh, in the apartment room floors, they, ha- they have a bunch of things that are spread around, not very organized. And despite the fact that this was sort of a high-class apartment in a, in a very affluent neighborhood, the rooms that they all walked into were apparently a mess, ex- except the, probably the uh, seaside apartment that the, he was using to lure the victims. So they were quite already, as soon as they raided the apartment, they were quite shocked at the amount of evidence that they had to search through and all these things, including videotapes. Uh, they immediately knew that, that there was something wrong. And there's potentially, of course, at the time they raided the apartment, they didn't know that the he was, you know, the number of victims was so high. But uh, as soon as they saw the amount of evidence, they said that they, they were actually afraid of something. Uh, they might stumble across something that is more horrific than what they were actually uh, chasing for. And I think I take from all of that paperwork this sense of complete immunity. The mm. fact that he could detail everything in minute, you know, in minutiae, the names, everything. He just felt like this. No, nothing was ever coming to get him. I think he felt completely bulletproof and inviolable. And I think that's a really interesting part of his psychology and also then of the case and the fact that the detectives had to try and crack through that immunity, that veneer. I have a question that, you know, I don't know if you have an answer to, um, Rob. I mean, we obviously got a very detailed search of how Lucy's remains were ultimately found and we don't have to get into those details. It's really difficult to watch and, and hear about, but also an incredibly detailed and incredible piece of police work. And I have the question, and I don't know if we really have an answer to it. Do we do we know how Lucy died or is that still a mystery? Ultimately, because by the time, unfortunately, they found the body, forensics were very difficult. As far as I know, the cause of death, we can assume, was the, either the asphyxiation or something similar to what the unfortunate thing that happened to Carita Ridgeway. But then obviously the escalation after that was the disposal of Lucy, which I think really put a very, very 
horrible full stop on the story. And I think that's sort of, it's hard to almost think about the cause of death when the really kind of gratuitous and unthinking way that Obara disposed of the the body sticks in your brain. It, you can't even yeah. really get past that. Yeah. And of course, it also, also depends on the laws of the land, right? What you can prove, what you can't prove is also very specific. Exactly. I'm wondering, Kiyoe, can you explain what happened at Obar's first trial? He received a, a life sentence related to Karita's death, but he was only charged in eight rapes out of possibly hundreds. And he was acquitted of any charges relating to Lucy. That was the first trial. It seems like there are still a lot of crimes that he actually won't be charged with or held accountable for, right? Right. I mean, the detectives uh, were really hoping and aiming for uh, uh, for the for the maximum penalty, which is the death penalty, and which means you have to be charged with a manslaughter, which didn't happen. And it, at the trial, the first trial, I th- I believe uh, that he was charged with a, a disposal of the body and potential manslaughter, but they didn't obviously acquit him. They never they were he was never acquitted for manslaughter. So that was sort of like a moot point for the detective because they were really hoping that, that this guy would be brought to justice by uh, receiving maximum penalty, which is actually a death penalty in Japan. But that's a, not a whole nother conversation, actually. But death penalty is a maximum penalty in Japan at the moment. So, And they were really felt that Georgia Barrow deserved uh, such uh, and didn't get it. Lucy's life was not in vain. Lucy brought justice to Karita uh, Ridgeway and the eight other rape victims who bravely came forward to support the case. But unfortunately, today, we've not received justice for Lucy. But, you know, that that's only because they didn't have enough concrete evidence that the, he actually committed a murder. And the, they, they didn't have all these circumstantial evidence, but just not, just not enough to charge him or convict him of a manslaughter. Can you talk about the lasting impression that the Lucy Blackman investigation had on the police officers who who worked on it? Yeah, I mean, that was a sort of like a major question that I had in my mind from the very beginning. And I mean, clearly, you know, each each have different reasons. But I mean, a lot of them do say that this was the biggest case that they ever handled. They had so much. uh, That is true. But I mean, the reasons uh, is quite different because two female officers who appears in the film clearly this is a case where they impacted the most because they were women as as well and they had to deal with the victims who basically they had to squeeze a statement out of the victims who basically didn't know that they were raped and you can imagine how difficult that might be and as some, one of the officers said some of them just didn't want to be bothered with this because it happened some years earlier etc so that was a difficult thing for them is they certainly clearly made a huge impact on them and thereafter uh, some of the de- detectives I mean they, they felt some kind of guilt because the foreigner because in Japan you know you obviously in any culture too when a foreigner visits your culture they want to be hospitable and etc and all that stuff and the sense of hospitality is quite sometimes it's important in a specific situation and I think all the detectives felt that the, this foreigner this uh, British woman uh, came from England, had to meet this tragic fate like this in Japan. I think they were quite sort of uh, upset that this had happened. So that was one of their also ongoing motivation for keep going uh, on the investigation to make sure that the 
that justice is done. So that's why they, you know, still visit the cave uh, after 20 years on. Uh, they had different, several different reasons, but they were all quite affected by the case, particularly who Lucy was and what happened to her, really. And they felt quite sense of guilt was certainly part of it. And, and the fact that they feel incredible empathy for what happened to her was quite an interesting, given the fact that they probably have never talked to any foreigners, that, and some of them said so themselves. But it's sort of like a completely went beyond cultural barriers and et cetera. They were really feeling for Lucy and they were going to get the right justice done for her. Rob, can you talk a little bit about how Lucy is remembered today? I mean, this case is still very well known in the UK. If you mention the name Lucy Blackman, I think there will be an intake of breath for most people, certainly of those of a certain age. I think it was genuinely a very eye-opening case. Lucy was known to be bubbly, lovely. All of her friends obviously, you know, paid testament to the fact that she was a fantastically welcoming human being. She just wanted to see the world. There was no crime in that. There was no need for what happened to happen. So I think there's regret. There was a bit of a kind of a zeitgeist moment in that she was the person who sort of unfortunately burst the bubble. This concept that you could travel, you know, willy-nilly around the world and be safe. So I think for a certain generation, it was definitely, you know, an incredibly seismic case. But Lucy herself, everyone knew that, you know, she was incredibly well-loved, loving family, incredibly sort of joyous friendships um you know read her diary and it's full of love for other people so she's she's remembered very well and she's remembered as this sort of this tragic figure that is a bit of a zeitgeist figure she's iconic for a period and it's kind of that period of travel and the puncturing of that balloon essentially of that bubble Well, the documentary Missing the Lucy Blackman Case, it's worthy of her memory and it's worthy of these investigators. Hioa Yamamoto and Rob Sixsmith, thank you so much for joining me to talk about it. It was really interesting talking to you both. Thanks so much. Thanks, Rebecca. No, thank you. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to Hioa Yamamoto and Rob Sixsmith. For more of my takes, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On. Each week on that show, we break down the latest in true crime documentaries, films, podcasts, and pop culture. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please rate and review this show and share it with your friends. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. And make sure to follow the show to stay tuned for all new episodes. Our music is by Kelly Mack at Netflix Music Lab. You Can't Make This Up is a production of Netflix. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>